Well, welcome everyone. Hope my mic is live here and not too live. Uh, appreciate you all coming today. The session today is really focusing on the semiconductor industry, but also the broader high-tech manufacturing industry, uh, of which semiconductor is really at the core of next generation technologies and current generation technologies. We're going to focus a lot on design and engineering, uh, electronic design automation. We'll also talk about uh, smart manufacturing uh, at the end of the presentation. And I'll give some insights as well into what Amazon ourselves do at, uh, uh, you know, in development of next generation chips. If you saw the Monday Night Live last night, you would have seen the announcement of our new uh, A1 instances, which are a system on chip, uh, custom designed by the, uh, the Amazon teams. So we are in this, in this business, in this industry, uh, as a semiconductor company, as a fabulous semiconductor company, and part of the ecosystem. And I'll talk about that uh, as we move forward. So again, our goals here are really to talk about workloads and trends, what we're seeing for cloud adoption across the industry. And as I said earlier, um, many of these uh, workloads that I'll talk about are not unique to semiconductor. They're certainly found in adjacent uh, industries, such as contract manufacturing, for example, uh, general manufacturing. We'll focus specifically on high-performance computing as, it, uh, as it's needed for electronic design automation. We'll focus a lot on that particular set of workloads because they're super important for innovation in semiconductor. I'll go through a, a few quick uh, customer examples, what customers are doing out there. Again, not just EDA, but some of the other use cases that are important for this industry. And we'll leave, as I said, on, uh, on some smart manufacturing uh, related topics. When we think about the industry, uh, it is a complex industry. I'm going to talk later on about Industry 4.0 and what some of the, uh, the goals are of, of that set of initiatives uh, globally. Uh, if we think about Industry 3.0, really where we've been since the 1960s, 1970s, where automation really became, came into play, we began to see significant disaggregation uh, of supply chain, in particular in semiconductor and high-tech manufacturing. And so now you have, at the front end, uh, you know, companies that do nothing but design chips, and you would actually consider Amazon as, as one of those doing fabulous semiconductor design. You have contract manufacturers who do actually the foundry of chips that make the wafers that then send them to the, uh, to the packagers. The packagers then send them up the supply chain into the assemblers themselves who make the boards and components that eventually get integrated into products that we buy. And I'm going to talk more about that a bit later. The important takeaway here, though, is that, that Amazon, we're part of this, right? We, we build high-technology products. They're important parts of what we do, both in the data centers for AWS, but also in consumer products, things like uh, Amazon Go, the you know, just-walk-out technologies of our stores. So for us, semiconductor industry is incredibly important, and it's an incredibly important set of workloads that drive innovation in technology products that we rely on every day. If you think about Amazon, you know, what is Amazon today? Obviously, it's an e-commerce site, but we're also in things like, uh, you know, creation of, of content that's uh, pushed out on Amazon Prime Video. We're in the semiconductor business, as I said earlier. We have lots and lots of different businesses within Amazon that rely on deep technology. I like to think of Amazon now, today, as really as a global logistics and supply chain company. We're very, very good at managing processes, at optimizing processes using data. And I'm going to return to that topic a bit later, how we use data and metrics 
to optimize processes. An important takeaway here is that you really can't optimize a process if you can't measure the process, and you can't measure the process unless you can connect to the process. And so connected intelligent devices are very, very important to us. And increasingly, our customers in the semiconductor sector are creating not just silicon devices, but actual connected devices and services, right? So it's an important, important trend that we're seeing in the semiconductor industry. So intelligent connected products. And if you've attended sessions on IoT and machine learning uh, here, which is a, it's a dominant topic, it's a very important set of topics, you've seen that we're operating not only in the cloud with machine learning training and with you know, big data and data lake and so forth, uh, but also out at the edge with things like Greengrass and FreeRTOS, where you're, you're you know, at the edge devices, you're, you're embedding intelligence. Very, very important uh, trend that we're seeing today that relies on cloud. Many, many use cases, of course, uh, one of those use cases is in industrial IoT. It's in smart factories. So we'll return to that topic uh, at the end of this presentation. And it's important when you think about connected devices that you think about the plumbing. So it's very, very important that you think about high-quality plumbing in support of next-generation connected products. So security is important. This is an eye chart of a diagram. If you attend the IoT sessions that we have here today, you can go much, much deeper into this topic. But the point here is that Amazon uh, today, Amazon Web Services, and more broadly Amazon, we operate throughout this, uh, throughout this uh, set of services, right? Right down to the edge, as I mentioned, up into the cloud. And these are the, these are the devices, these are the services, these are the products that customers in the semiconductor sector are driving, right, are driving to create, right, through next generation uh, silicon design, through the design of next generation services and software stacks, and increasingly these rely on cloud. And in some cases at extreme scale, to rapidly deploy, rapidly create these next generation products. So focusing in a little more on, on specific use cases, I mentioned before we're going, to, we're going to talk a fair amount today about electronic design automation because for fabulous semiconductor customers in particular, this is the dominant workload. This is the heavy lift, if you will, of IT in order to get next generation products out and in front of customers on, in a timely way. There are other high performance computing workloads that are found in the industry not just for electronic design automation. I'll talk briefly about workloads in HPC, for example, structural analysis, materials simulations, electromagnetics, lithography, right? These are fast-growing workloads that are required to build next-generation products. AI and ML and IoT, I just touched on very, very important sets of workloads that we find in the semiconductor industry. PLM, used for product lifecycle management, regression testing, big workloads there. I'll cover some of these a bit later, but we are going to focus almost exclusively for the next 10, 15 minutes on electronic design automation because that is the biggest set of workloads today in cloud. And I'm going to turn it over at this point to Mark Duffield, Global Tech Lead for Semiconductor, to walk through uh, best practices for, uh, for EDA in the cloud, for running at scale these workloads. Thank you. Okay, so um, as Dave's mentioned, so I'm the worldwide tech lead focusing on semiconductors, which means I work with uh, semiconductor customers literally all over the world, helping them transition their workloads over to AWS. So end-to-end uh, -end flow, right? So the, in, the entire workflow uh, to AWS. 
which includes our own silicon team as well. So it's taking those best practices and applying them to customer sites as well. So how do we get there? So some of the factors to be considered in this space, right? So first off is, is really going to be security. Uh, that's where we start at AWS. Uh, the security of IP, uh, the workflows, the tools, um, but also data in transit, data at rest, everything needs to be secure. And it's definitely something we consider to be very important at AWS, if not most important. Performance, so what is going to be the right combination of compute, memory, networks, and storage to see your application perform well and to see your end-to-end -end flow uh, do either just as well on-prem or even beating uh, some of your on-prem flows. Automation, license management, uh, something that is probably near and dear to a lot of us here in this room, trying to figure out how to manage your license servers and how many to have. Uh, also, part of that is the orchestration software, so cluster management, uh, bringing up all the resources that you need when you need them, but also spinning them down when you don't need them. Um, also, all kinds of factors that go into that as well. Remote graphics, so you know, being able to have users all around the world to be able to do schematics or waveforms or what have you to be able to see these um, uh, displays across multiple regions without too much latency issues, too many latency issues. And then of course there's uh, the EDA and the IP support uh, from the vendors, right? And so working with and um, you know, helping us uh, help you, brokering those conversations with the EDA vendors is all going to be part of this. And then of course there's the foundry support, making sure that you have the IP that you need to be able to run on the right foundry. And then also it can't be too expensive, right? So we have to think about cost optimization and how we're going to be able to move your workloads efficiently and in a cost-optimized manner to AWS. And so this is um, this is kind of a you know a puzzle of pieces that we're that we start with with customers. And at the middle of all this is going to be the compute. Is going to be figuring out what your workload is going to need from the number of cores and the number of memory storage requirements, all of that starts to plug into this as well. So you think about, well, do I need an NFS server? Am I okay with some of the local storage that I have? Then you start thinking about some of the networking concerns and plugging in the networking uh, components there as well. And then there are partners and ISVs and SIs that will help us there too. Uh, for orchestration and automation, uh, we have AWS Batch. And later on in the week, we actually have um, one of our own silicon teams that uh, built out a workshop that's leveraging AWS Batch to bring up uh, EDA workloads on AWS. And so we're actually seeing some, uh, some real big uptake in customers' interest in containerizing workloads and trying to see if they can leverage Batch as part of that. Another tool uh, that was recently rebranded from CFN cluster to parallel cluster uh, is, is a tool that allows you to bring up more of a, a traditional type cluster um, so think uh, SGE or you know, your typical schedulers that, that you would be uh, more familiar with for legacy environments. And part of the visualization stack, we have nice DCV and AppStream as well. So if you look at what you have in your, in your corporate data center currently and some of the challenges that you may have there, so it's going to be remote graphics, it's going to be um, pulling in remote sites data and backup and some of the challenges that, that, that this leads to, right? So it could be an inflexible, uh, it could be an inflexible design. So are you able to scale when you need it to, <clears throat> excuse me, or are you allowed to contract when you need to? Does it lead to 
poor utilization? Um, and also, are you tied to these multi-year, these long-term uh, life cycle management uh, um, engagements? So uh, there's that, but there's uh, also the security that you need to be concerned with as well. So if we look at that architecture, but instead now think about it, how we can actually do this on AWS, right? So in the middle of this is the VPC. So this is one of our services, this is one of our products called Virtual Private Cloud. And in there you can see all the components that you would need to, to start thinking about how you would run your workloads on AWS, whether that's a POC workload, whether that's the entire flow, uh, thinking about auto-scaling groups, uh, thinking about the different uh, file system options. And now you need to start thinking about how that data is going to go in and out of AWS, right? Lever <clears throat> Excuse me, throat's dry. Um, leveraging things like S3 and Glacier and um, also working with the third-party IP providers as well. And then uh, thinking about trying to eliminate some of those remote, uh, uh, those uh, dependencies on some of the remote graphics displays as well. So now that becomes either a zero client or you know, a thin client to where users are able to access um, you know, waveform views and things like that remotely. So thinking about how you scale out these workloads and thinking about how um, if you have a chip design that you know is going to take four years, but um, rather than trying to figure out how you're going to procure what you need just for the last six months when you're coming up against tape out, think about the idea of what if I can launch a million jobs or a million cores uh, right now today and I can shut them down in two weeks from now. What kind of flexibility does that give you? And so we really encourage customers to start to think big. Think about, think about things about, uh, in, in a completely different way, and it really is a paradigm shift when you think about it. So the idea uh, that, you know, that engineers may have is, I'm going to kick off this job, but I'm not going to do it till the end of the day because I know it's going to take eight or nine hours. But on AWS, if you scale horizontally, that job comes down to 30 minutes or an hour. So it's, it's also about you know, thinking about differently about these flows and how they're going to move through uh, through the entire process. And so specific to instance types that we have, right? So this is by no means a comprehensive list of all the, the instance types that we have, but kind of gives you an idea of the instance types that you should be thinking about for most of these tools. And specifically to each tool, uh, you know, the, this is actually being taken from uh, some of the customer experiences that we've had both with our internal teams and with external teams. And this, these are the instance types that we're seeing being successful with certain tools. So uh, recently we announced a Z1D, and I'll dive into that in a little bit more here in the next slide. But we're seeing that being uh, a very utility instance, right, from an NFS server to, uh, to running memory-intensive workloads to also CPU, uh, because it does have a 4 gigahertz sustained processor. Um, but then we're also... Uh, we also have the T3 and the T2 instances. So if you just need something to test, you maybe you've never used AWS before, right? So getting on these smaller instances, seeing it actually work, seeing how AWS works, you know, definitely think about something small and something that you can bring up quickly and spin down fast. Um, and then we also have accelerated instance types. And you think about our FPGA instance with the F1 and the P3 instance as well uh, for deep learning and AI. So, uh, oh, and I can't, excuse me, and there's uh, additional instance here, a call out here is with our high memory instances as well. So X1 instances and with the, the newer instance types that we released recently have up to 12 terabytes of memory. 
This is the Z1D instance, which in a lot of ways was made for this space. It has, it has a very high memory to core ratio. So this has uh, 16 gigabytes per core. Um, it goes up to 24 cores. Uh, the vCPU column here, if you're not familiar with that, that's a thread. So if you ever see vCPU within AWS, you cut that number in half, and that's going to be the number of physical cores that you have on that server. And this is built off of our, uh, our new Nitro system, which has a thin KVM layer. Um, and uh, it also has uh, the 25 gigabit network capacity as well, network um, throughput as well. Oh, and I'm oh, sorry, one more mention on this guy is uh, you, get, you also get uh, local NVMe storage as well, uh, up to uh, 1.8 terabytes. So this is, this is an amazing quote, right? So this is um, uh, Deidre from, uh, from Synopsys who uh, worked with us and the Z1D, um, uh, uh, the Z1, doing new runs on the Z1D. Uh, comparison from an R4 to a Z1D, they saw a 35% gain, uh, which reduced the time down to six hours faster. And this is just with one tool. So this is with uh, ICC. And uh, we're going to continue testing. and We're going to continue uh, seeing how much performance we can actually get out of the Z1D instances for the EDA tool set. A little bit more about storage. Um, so these are the, the storage options that we have on AWS. Um, we have some, uh, some really exciting announcements that are going to be coming out uh, later this week. Uh, so definitely uh, um, listen to uh, Andy's keynote on Wednesday, but there's, there's also going to be more information on Thursday. So in this space, definitely have a look at those. Uh, but right now we have Elastic File System, we have EBS, we have uh, Instant Store, which I mentioned before in the Z1D. Uh, but for Object, we have S3, uh, S3 and Frequent Access, and Glacier, and I know that there was another announcement on uh, S3, but I can't remember what it was. I, I think I read it this afternoon. But in any case, um, we're constantly iterating on behalf of our customers, so by no means is this a static version of where we're at with storage. And uh, diving in a little bit more on storage, um, so I kind of, uh, look toward the right of this slide here. Um, kind of pull your eyes that way. And the idea of having S3 really be the start and stop of all your data. The idea of keeping your, your data in object but only use expensive file systems only when you need them. Uh, and thinking about bringing in more data and taking out as little data as possible so you're not going back and forth across from on-prem to AWS. And that's really one of the things that we, we try to work with all of our customers on, is figuring out which data to pull into AWS, which data that they would like to actually keep synced across. And a quick call out to a new product. On Monday, we announced DataSync, which does allow and should enable uh, some of this process of data sync across from uh, AWS to on-prem. And now we're going to hand it back to Dave. And Thank you, Mark. Cost optimization. There you go. As Mark said, you know, there's a, a slew of announcements uh, this week, and, and last night you certainly saw some with the A1 instances, uh, which again were custom silicon, custom system on chip developed by our silicon teams. You saw announcements around network performance, uh, storage sync. Uh, we're continuing to innovate. And so 
one of the most important elements of cost optimization as well as performance optimization is continually tracking uh, what we're doing in compute, right? In uh, storage management, in networking performance, and also what's happening with our, with our ISV partners, with the EDA vendors, the CAE vendors, and how they are continuing to innovate uh, using cloud. So um, it's a moving target, but it's moving in a great way. The, the progress forward is tremendous um, in this area. When we think specifically about cost optimizing, it's important to remember that cloud is, is really very different from on-premise environments. It gives you opportunities to scale up, scale down dramatically, to continuously refresh, right? Uh, the scale up and scale down can be rather extreme. Now, you may have constraints to scalability. For example, uh, you've got a fixed pool of, of software licenses for a particular uh, workload in your, in your suite. Maybe others you don't. Uh, so you, you, you sort of pick the problems that are, that are able to scale dramatically. But even if you have that fixed pool of licensing, the ability to scale up and down the IT really on demand uh, allows you to better utilize software licenses, right? So even, even if you had the same performance on-prem and in cloud, you can probably get better software utilization just because you can scale up, scale down the IT resources that are needed and not have queue contention, right? A second very important point is to look at that suite of instance types that we have. Continually right-size your applications. Start to think about throwing uh, large memory jobs that are only used uh, around tape-out, uh, static timing analysis and DRC, right, the, the physical design workloads, into a different set of EC2 instances, into a different set of, of architecture, really, on the cloud than you do for the front-end uh, verification, such as your regression tests, right? And start to pull apart the workflows and launch them into the right kinds of, of clusters on AWS that are well-optimized for those. And that can save you a dramatic amount of money. Related to that is the use of AWS spot instances, right? So if you have workloads that, that require running enormous numbers of jobs that are relatively short running and maybe don't have a lot of dependencies on other jobs, those are just natural to run on EC2 spot. And the, the, the rates of termination on EC2 spot are really quite low. So if you really manage spot instances well, uh, you can run applications that are critical, business critical, that have an SLA for completion time on spot very, very effectively and save tons of money. Uh, so it, it, it's a very uh, common now for us to see customers in manufacturing, customers that are doing large-scale simulations, begin on AWS, uh, perhaps in a, in a less well-optimized way. But when they begin to learn about Spot and optimize around Spot, their spending just goes down dramatically. We see it again and again. And we want to encourage that up front, that you use Spot as, as soon as possible. And think about refreshing. So Z1D came out recently. We announced also uh, M5A, the AMD-based instances, the A1, right, just came out. So always think about, can I re-architect for different instance types that maybe I hadn't considered before? Constant refresh is a very important part of a well-optimized cloud environment. And also think about your EDA license utilization. Are there ways that you can monitor perhaps the infrastructure that you couldn't on-premise. Just one example, maybe I want to 
capture all of the logs that are coming out of my scheduler, right, and start to build some intelligence, analytics, maybe even deep learning on those logs so I can identify perhaps users in my organization that are, that are jamming jobs in the queue because they want to have their priority raised or some such. Or maybe I simply want to get some information around license utilization and perhaps predict, for example, how much, uh, how much compute I'll need for a given class of jobs. There's a lot of ways that you can begin to think about cloud-native services like machine learning to help you optimize the infrastructure, including your EDA licenses. As I just mentioned, think about cloud pricing models. That's very important. Think about a base uh, set of reserved instances for, for what you know you're going to need, the long-running jobs, right? The, the, the mission-critical jobs you want to save money to, reserved instances. Fill in from there as much as possible using spot, and then only when necessary, dip into the sort of full price on-demand compute on EC2. And that's a super important technique, right? If you're not familiar with the pricing models, I'll, I'll just highlight them briefly here. And there's a lot more granularity to these pricing models than I'm showing here. But on demand, uh, basically you're paying uh, with an hourly price on a per second metering basis. It's a fixed price. Uh, you launch the instance, you pay for it as long as, as long as you need it. You shut it down, you stop paying. Some people call it coin-op computing. Um, it's, it's very convenient. It's uh, very cost-effective if your utilization is relatively low. It's a great way to scale up and do those first POC projects. Reserved instances, as most of you know, it's either a one-year or a three-year, either all up front or over time. There's different models of reserved instances. And this is where you're making a commitment for a particular type of instance, like a C5, for example, or a Z1. You're going to be using that for that term, right? It's sort of by definition 100% utilized, but you can scale it up, scale it down if you need to. So again, that's, that's a great place to put, you know, databases or, uh, or even license servers and so forth, right? You're going to have up and running for a long time. Or the base workloads that you know you're going to need running day after day after day that are difficult to run on spot, which I'll cover next. So spot instances. Very, very powerful. If you have not investigated or used Spot in your environments, please think about it. Spot is, is uh, us offering whatever excess unused capacity there is in various capacity pools around the world in our regions and availability zones that you can access uh, through a, a very low-cost model. Uh, at times, uh, up to 90% less than the on-demand full price. It's dramatic price savings by using Spot. The trade-off is that the availability of Spot depends on a particular capacity pool. And the demands, for example, on, let's say, uh, a C5 instance family in a particular availability zone in a particular region. And so if there's a a run on that instance type, there's a lot of demand for it, the capacity pools on spot will go down and we begin to evict, right, and terminate with two minutes of notification uh, the jobs that are running on spot instances. So you're probably not going to put your human resources database on a spot instance, but as we learned a, a couple of days ago with uh, Derek from Qualcomm, you might even consider putting your license server in there if you can build a fault-tolerant, auto-scaling, resilient environment. It's really surprising what you can do with Spot once you begin to understand how to manage terminations 
and manage operating fleets of spot instances across availability zones and different capacity pools. Very, very powerful. In a well-optimized, high-performance computing environment, and we, again, we see this across industries, what you'll see initially is that customers are a bit conservative. They'll buy some reserved instances because it's cost-effective. They'll be used a little bit of spot. They'll use some on-demand. In some cases, they might not even trust running in spot at all, so they're running a mix of reserved instances and on-demand. And then as they cost-optimize, they begin to learn spot. They begin to investigate rates of termination, for example, in spot instances in different uh, availability zones. Or maybe they use higher-level services like Spot Fleet, for example, to manage this. Now they begin to use more and more spot, and they just get addicted to it because the cost savings are tremendous and the ability to scale are enormous. I'll talk in a few minutes about a specific example of this extreme scaling using spot with a manufacturing customer, actually a customer in the high-tech sector. Mark mentioned the support of, of EDA vendors is very important, and EDA vendors have been very cooperative and helpful with customers migrating to cloud. Foundries are also coming on board. This is a quote from TSMC uh, back in, uh, in October. They announced this uh, virtual design environment initiative at their open innovation uh, platform forum. It's a great quote. The cloud is pervasive, will fundamentally influence silicon design. And that's what it's all about, right? If we can accelerate silicon design, accelerate the innovation process, then the pipeline of new chip starts that go into the foundries just, just goes up dramatically. So it's good for foundries, it's good for all of us if we can innovate faster in this sector. And a call out to some of our partners in this sector, and, and all of these are partners of AWS. Uh, all of them are, are here in various uh, capacities uh, at reInvent uh, this year. Uh, Cadence and Synopsys, Mender Graphics, now part of Siemens, uh, very important uh, EDA vendors, all of whom have uh, cloud initiatives supporting cloud-based uh, customers. Ansys, of course, a well-known CAE vendor that also has EDA software. For example, their Red Hawk uh, product line runs very well in AWS. I've mentioned Siemens, their broad product line, not just EDA, but also in IoT, for example. Xilinx providing the Vivado tool set used for FPGA design with our F1 instance. Uh, and then on the bottom, of course, those that are offering a scheduling software, such as Platform LSF from IBM, uh, Spectrum LSF, I think it's now called, uh, ARM offering development environments on our, on our F1 FPGA instances, and that's a session that's happening, I think, later this week, uh, F1 instances. Altair with PBS Works. Altair also now has Flowtracer, RTDA, and Univa with uh, Univa Grid Engine, uh, the old uh, Sun Grid Engine environment, which I'll talk about in a few moments, its ability to scale. EDA vendors in particular have been very progressive in support of cloud and in helping customers onboard to cloud. And just a couple of call-outs there. Cadence Design Systems has been offering for some time now hosted design solutions, which is on the right side of this, of this chart. And that's a, that's a, that's a uh, software as a service, if you will. It's a managed service that Cadence provides for full chip design flows running on cloud. And they give customers a number of options uh, to scale up, scale down, and, and really not think so much about IT. On the left side is more of a customer managed environment where Cadence, through their cloud passport program, will help customers onboard in their own AWS accounts. So giving both of those options is very important for customers. Some want a fully managed environment, some want to manage their own destiny with the help of the EDA vendor. 
Similarly, Synopsys offers a, a suite of solutions there. Customer-managed environments where they help to deploy, they support deployments on cloud, uh, a more Synopsys-managed, Synopsys cloud that can be used for full chip, right? And also on the emulation side, the ability to access emulation uh, you know, without having to purchase an emulator through a managed service. And emulation, by the way, that's a very important set of workloads in the electronic design automation area. And all three major EDA vendors have emulation products, a Cadence with Palladium, for example, Mentor with Veloce, and a Synopsys with Zebu. I uh, hope I got that right. All of these are now available in more on-demand models, similar to a cloud model. And in some cases, these are directly connected to AWS, providing customers that are running EDA workflows in the cloud to access emulation. One of the important reasons to do that, by the way, is that if you're running emulation of a silicon device, you have to build the uh, emulation uh, models, if you will, that you're going to run on the emulator. And those themselves are quite compute intensive. And because the emulator is a is rather expensive and specialized piece of hardware, you want to keep it very, very busy doing the, uh, the most important tests, emulations. And so you actually want to do a lot of emulation builds and have those in the pipeline ready to run on the emulator. And scaling up emulation builds on the cloud is a really important and powerful uh, set of workloads. I want to walk through just a few uh, quick customer examples. Uh, we have a case study with NXP Semiconductor. NXP has been running uh, EDA simulations and a variety of other workloads on AWS for quite some time. They actually started this back in 2012 to burst out some of their EDA workloads uh, onto AWS. And this continues today, as well as NXP doing uh, things in the IoT area and in software development, stacks. Uh, very uh, important customer. Xilinx has been using uh, AWS now for, for some time to run regression testing. Now, Xilinx is not, um, not per se an EDA vendor, but the EDA software that's used for chip design, for, specifically for FPGA design, the Vivado uh, tools, which are used for simulation and place and route of FPGAs, uh, right, right. This, is, this is very powerful EDA-like software. And the testing of this software, the regression testing of this software is very important and very challenging. And so they scale this quite large on AWS uh, to get those regressions done much faster. MediaTek's an example of an organization that does a lot of IoT products. They're an IoT partner of ours. We have a case study that talks about their ability to more rapidly innovate around IoT product development using AWS. A little bit further from EDA and from, from Semiconductor uh, is in Korea. So Korea, LSIS, is an organization, it's quite a large company actually, that provides a smart energy infrastructure. And so they've been using, with our partner Rescale, a variety of CAE solutions, including uh, solutions by ANSYS and, and Siemens and others, running at scale and getting dramatic benefits, in particular using spot instances, as I mentioned before, to more quickly develop next generation technology products in the area of smart energy. Let's talk about Western Digital. Western Digital um, has been using cloud for some time now. And Western Digital has two important initiatives uh, or scale out workloads they run today on AWS. There's actually many others that they run, but these are, these are two important to highlight in the design and engineering space. 
The first one is the big data platform that they've created. I'll talk about the need for this in a few moments, why big data and, and data lake is becoming so important for high-tech manufacturing. The big data platform really started as a way to scale out, at Western Digital, as a way to scale out a Hadoop cluster and to start to get uh, information, yield analysis, for example, or process changes, uh, you know, uh, uh, yield divergence, right? in different manufacturing facilities around the world. So they wanted to take all of these islands of data in different manufacturing facilities, pull the logs, pull the information into a data lake, and start to run analysis on that. Once they've got the data lake in place, as we would call it now, this big data platform can then quickly evolve. And so now, in addition to running that sort of Hadoop environment and other analytics tools and Tableau and so forth, they're able to deploy machine learning on that same data. And so Western Digital has spoken, for example, at the NVIDIA conference about the use of NVIDIA GPUs to do TensorFlow training models with this use case, right? And that's an important reason to move to cloud. You can very quickly apply new technologies in the area of machine learning and big data analytics. On the HPC side, and this is particularly exciting, they have been using uh, cloud for, for some years now to run large-scale simulations, for example, to do characterization of drive heads. Western Digital is a storage vendor. They do uh, solid-state devices. They do uh, hard drives, very high-density hard drives. If you've ever cracked open a hard drive, you might begin to understand they're very complex pieces of machinery. They operate, let's say, 15,000 RPMs, helium-filled, uh, incredibly tight tolerances and super, super dense magnetics in these devices. It just gets harder and harder every year to design. So it's a really big compute problem from a simulation perspective to design a next generation disk drive in particular. Last week, um, you know, Western Digital successfully launched a simulation cluster on AWS to do material science simulations for disk drives. It was running 2.3 million jobs simultaneously, not simultaneously, in the course of eight hours, using over 1 million vCPUs on AWS, all on spot instances. And this reflects back to what Mark said a few moments ago, what could you do with a million cores? It's no longer a sort of academic, uh, dreamlike question to ask. People are doing it, right? What if I could bring my 20-day simulation cycle which was already quite massive, down to eight hours using a million vCPUs. This is now practical. Customers are doing it. So if we can find use cases like that in sort of bread and butter electronic design automation or in areas like lithography, computational lithography, and design rule check, think how much more quickly we could get silicon, silicon products to market. So our own semiconductor teams use AWS extensively. They didn't start that way. So Annapurna, our semiconductor team, one of our semiconductor organizations internally, that um, was an acquisition back in uh, 2014, 2015, they were actually a, a rather traditional semiconductor company. They had workflows using uh, a variety of EDA vendors, just as everyone does, shared file systems, schedulers and so forth, right? A very traditional looking stack for design and engineering for verification 
using, uh, again, very traditional methods in a data center. They quickly moved and migrated piece by piece into AWS, just as other customers are doing at the same time, and in, in more so now. And they had to think about things like, what does a hybrid environment look like? How do we manage storage across the on-premise environment, uh, which, by the way, was in Israel, with a cloud-based environment, which, by the way, was in Dublin, Ireland, right, in our, in our Dublin region. How do I deal with latency? How do I begin to rethink the workload? And this took some time. Migration is never trivial. But once they're there, there seems substantial benefits in ability to scale and tape out more quickly, get higher quality products. The Annapurna team will speak uh, tonight. Uh, what time is that talk? I think it's 3.15. I'm asking Mark yeah. the tough questions. If you don't have this on your schedule, uh, please look it up. It's uh, Amazon on Amazon, I believe, is the name of the title. And this is our Amazon Silicon team talking in much more detail about that architecture and how they run uh, electronic design automation on AWS. 445. 445 at the <laughs> MGM. <laughs> MGM, thank you. Thank you. So yeah, uh, EDA is, is moving. Uh, EDA has a long history, a long legacy, but we are seeing cloud migration. And we have a lot of learnings ourselves from internal users that are, that are doing this effectively. The white paper that perhaps you have seen uh, that, that uh, Mark and others on the team have helped develop was really driven in, in large part by experiences internally in our silicon teams, as well as working with customers externally. I want to pivot now and uh, talk about other parts of the uh, of the puzzle here. So not just electronic design automation, which we'll go deeper on in, in other sessions, such as the Amazon on Amazon session later today. I want to talk about smart manufacturing, Industry 4.0, and how this relates to improved uh, silicon, uh, silicon production and uh, the generation, uh, next generation of, of highly reliable smart products. If you're not familiar with the term, Industry 4.0 really refers to this next wave that's really starting now around what's uh, commonly called cyber-physical systems. And there's a lot of aspects to that. But if you think about history, right, go back to the 18th century in Industry 1.0, which was really uh, mechanical production, the early use of, of machinery and mills and so forth. And really, water and steam was that era. So think of the Victorian era, right? You move into the 20th century, and we've become a petroleum-based uh, environment, mass production, you know, Henry Ford and all of that comes into play, and we begin to really be able to crank out very consistent products at high scale, but typically with highly vertically integrated companies, like a Ford, for example, or, or a General Motors. Now you move into Industry 3.0, which really uh, became um, quite prevalent in the 1970s with the advent of of uh, you know, mini computers and the ability to automate uh, to a much greater degree. And that's really where the silicon design world began and still exists, right? The idea now that you've got different parts of the supply chain that are well optimized to do what they do, and then they throw it over to the wall to the next uh, participant in that supply chain. Now, it's highly automated. It's, uh, it's highly informed by data. There's a lot of you know, software behind it. Right, both in the design and engineering side with things like simulations, 
uh, but also on the production side with you know, uh, factories that are increasingly using robotics. So what is Industry 4.0? Industry 4.0 is where you really bring a lot of this together. And key to Industry 4.0 is really cloud. And, and why that is is because Industry 4.0 the idea of cyber physical systems is you need to have significant amount of machine learning driving it. You need to be able to collaborate across the supply chain for, for greater yield, higher quality products. You need to do things like think about simulation, not just for design and engineering, but also for digital twin. If you haven't heard that term, digital twin is the idea that simulation doesn't really stop at the design and engineering phase. You keep the digital twin, that simulated product, up and running and capturing data and state data and running scenarios so that at all times you can, whether it's doing training or maybe uh, experimenting with scenarios out in the field as you see new, uh, think of self-driving cars, right? The digital twin for the self-driving car is up in the cloud and it's helping you to understand uh, what went wrong or perhaps predict what's going to happen next in the digital twin. So simulation grows from just being part of design and engineering into actually being part of deployment. That's the idea of a cyber physical system. And there's so much more in Industry 4.0. And cloud enables this because you've got the scale for data storage to run those digital twins, uh, to do massive simulations, right, and to collaborate in a secure way. So how does this relate to semiconductor? If we kind of bring it real, you know, how does machine learning in particular apply to semiconductor? We're starting to see uh, machine learning deployed throughout this uh, supply chain, throughout the, 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 you know, the value generation. On the EDA side, EDA vendors are already using machine learning in their algorithms, and I've just listed a few uh, either potential or real use cases here, uh, but the EDA vendors are, are doing this already, right? So think about place and route. That might be a great place to do machine learning and informed uh, routing and so forth. Or think about design rule checks, for example where machine learning can absolutely help you to predict uh, where you might have errors and corner cases that you might want to investigate more fully. On the foundry side, machine learning is used to do things like predictive maintenance. You know, when is that materials handling machine uh, going to fail? Or that, you know, if I start to hear a noise on that bearing, does that indicate that, you know, that my, uh, my cryo pump's about to go out, right? Predictive maintenance. And also we're seeing the use already of foundry data and machine learning to look at yield analysis, similar to what I described with Western Digital. These are very real use cases, and uh, we are absolutely seeing cloud adoption in these use cases already uh, in machine learning, but it's still early days for machine learning and Industry 4.0 in the semiconductor sector. If we look at smart manufacturing in, in foundry, but also contract manufacturing, the data lake strategy that I mentioned before with Western Digital example is extremely important. So data lake means I'm going to take all the data I can. I'm not going to throw away anything. I'm going to pull the logs that are coming from that cryo pump. I'm going to pull data that's coming from my digital twin in a simulation. I'm going to pull uh, you know, field data around failures and so forth into a common storage area, S3. I'm going to spend a little bit of time probably normalizing that data, putting some metadata around it, but I'm not going to overthink that. I'm just going to get it into one place. So now my, you know, my data scientists or my you know, business analysts, the folks that work on you know, process improvements in the design side, 
or need to support the product in the field in a controlled, governed way have access to that data and the tools they need to actually do analysis on that data. And there are many ways on AWS, of course, for the data to come in. The data ingestion could be streaming with Kinesis. It could be brought in in bulk with a snowball. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways you can get the data in. And, and that may involve a curation of the data because maybe the, maybe the data collection's happening on a piece of third-party hardware that's in my foundry that's operating on critical uh, process data that I don't want anyone to see. So I want to curate, curate that data before it lands in cloud. Curation's important, but once you've got that data lake, you've got that strategy, now you've got a, a, a large arsenal of tools to put against that data. And that arsenal of tools continues to improve. As I said before, maybe I started with Hadoop. Maybe I've got some third-party analysis software. Maybe I start to do some high-level machine learning. Maybe I hire a data scientist, roll up my sleeves, and actually do some TensorFlow training on GPUs. You can do all that stuff because the data is in one, in one place, and it's well protected. So a modern data architecture really requires that you've got a place to store that data in a data lake, unstructured, structured, all of it there together. You've got some metadata. And now you're making a decision about which of the insights are going to be near real time, the machine's about to fail, which ones are more batch, perhaps yield management, right? And you begin to build architectures. Start small, right? Small data lake, a few applications. Think big, where am I going to go from there? That's exactly what we saw at Western Digital. They've spoken publicly about this, been very successful for them. They're not the only ones. Um, using this strategy across the manufacturing spectrum. Again, I'm gonna move through this fairly quickly in the interest of time, but if we think about semiconductor and foundry and a few of the areas to think about that machine learning can certainly help us. Yield management I mentioned, you know, if you're looking, for example, at different uh, you know, foundries or you're looking at different manufacturing processes, different packaging, perhaps different contract manufacturers, where are you seeing, seeing yield excursions, right? Uh, what can I do to fix that? Maybe right up front by thinking differently about uh, DRC and what I'm seeing in the, in the front end design. Am I not doing enough simulations, enough parameter sweeps on, you know, on, on certain simulations, right? Antenna simulations, whatever it is, right? Are there things that I can do to improve the, the quality by analyzing field failure data, or maybe even you know, sentiment analysis on what people are saying about my product on Twitter feeds. You know, who, who knows what I can use? Get the data in, figure out later which of that data is insightful and can be correlated with other data. How can I increase the product engineering process, right? Can I more efficiently utilize my human beings, my expensive engineers? Can I you know, better utilize my, my software licenses? Are there things that I can do in the engineering side, are there things I can do that help me with the production quality, with the actual product quality right up front, uh, right? And if you're doing testing, if you've got test equipment, you've got, um, you know, testers for, for boards or you've got uh, visual inspection systems for wafers, whatever it is, right? Think about using cloud and machine learning at scale for some of these problems, at extreme scales. So tying all this together, right? Industry 4.0, if it's about anything, it's about improving the entire supply chain, right? So tying together in a secure, well-governed way what's happening up front 
in design and engineering, and specifically in semiconductor, that's electronic design automation and things like DRC, design rule check. What's happening in wafer production? Getting access to, in a secure way, the necessary information about wafer production and yield analysis, right, and, and so forth. So I can do things, for example, like more intelligently bin my, my uh, wafers, my dyes, right, in a stacked dye product. And well, machine learning can help, and getting data from the, from the foundries can help with that. Are there things in the chip packaging side that are actually impacting quality? I need to get that data in, too. And allow these different stakeholders in the supply chain to collaborate more effectively and not simply have, you know, walls between them. So, for example, maybe I've got a problem, uh, you know, back in the assembly side that I've sort of traced back to some electrical issue that happened in packaging that could really be, um, you know, better uh, designed out if I went right up front and said, hey, you know, engineers, uh, how about if we think about uh, these pinouts and not those pinouts, and here's why, and, you know, I, I don't know, I'm not a designer anymore. But the idea now is that you've got a secure chamber that you can create to collaborate. Maybe I want to have somebody all the way back in the OEM that's going to consume, consume my product collaboratively do a simulation, right, that involves the, the, the semiconductor supplier, the IP suppliers. I don't want to open, you know, ports into either one of my data centers for sure, but maybe I can create a collaborative environment in the cloud, a chamber to do exactly that. Or maybe just to debug a problem with your EDA software, create a chamber for that. Collaborate with your IP provider, create a chamber for that. So cloud makes it very easy to stand up these chambers, to run workloads in them, to collaborate, and then tear them down. They just go away forever, right? So that was a lot of topics around semiconductor. Any one of those topics, we could have drilled down into a full one-hour session. There's more sessions. If you're interested in Smart Factory, Industry 4.0, uh, there's actually quite a few sessions of interest. There was one in here just before this with, with Fender guitars, I, I guess, talking about Smart Factory and Smart uh, Production there. But optimizing smart factories using data lakes and ML, uh, I don't know when that session is. You can look it up, MFG 301. They'll go deeper into this topic of how uh, data and IoT as well can be used in smart factory. I mentioned later today Amazon on Amazon, how Amazon designs chips on AWS. That'll be a very insightful talk for those who are actually in the front end uh, design part of, of this who are doing or fabulous semiconductor customers, for example. Uh, yesterday, uh, there was a, a session by Derek McGill of Qualcomm on how to build highly performant, uh, highly available license servers in the cloud. That's done, but it'll be, re uh, I don't think that's recorded, that shock talk. So you'll have to go find Derek to see what he was talking about. But it was a fascinating talk about how you could create, uh, for example, highly reliable triad of, of license servers uh, and even use spot instances for them if you architect correctly. Uh, and on the FPGA side, if you're interested in what's happening on FPGA acceleration in the cloud, the uh, uh, custom hardware acceleration with Amazon EC2 F1 instances, I think that's later in the week, and that includes uh, a reference uh, and actually a, a discussion by ARM about how they're using FPGAs in the cloud to create a development environment uh, for startups and for academia. Uh, with their latest generation uh, ARM IP that's securely embedded into an FPGA and it allows the developers to quickly uh, create solutions around that without exposing that IP uh, publicly. So lots happening here. Reinvent is an exciting time. Uh, thank you all for being here One today. More. And we'll be here 
EDA workshop on Thursday. The EDA workshop, is that fully subscribed yet? Or no, there's, there, we have slots open. Great, so there's slots open. If you're interested in the EDA workshop uh, that's happening on Thursday, it's a hands-on workshop, uh, come up and speak to us. We'll give you a pointer to that, or you can find it in the catalog, presumably. Yes. Great. Yes. MFG 401. Thank you so much. Uh, Thursday 315, I think. Great. Yep. Thank you. So thank, thank you. you all for coming today. Really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, we'll be here for a few more minutes if you have additional, uh, if you have questions. Thank you. Thank you.